All right, right now we'll turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. And we'll now hear the scripture reading read by Jenny. Our reading today is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Tarek George, and I'm the Director of Family Discipleship here at Grace Toronto Church. And if you're just joining us, welcome. We've been in a sermon series in the book of Colossians looking at uh, what does it mean to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ And this morning, we find ourselves focusing on verse 12 in particular. Here, Paul wants to describe for us what the gospel ought to look like in practice. Here, he shares some of the most important ingredients for a robust and flavorful Christian life. Well, not too long ago, I remember taking a drive with my family outside of the city for a hike. Uh, We left soon after church, and our plan was to make a pit stop uh, for something to eat on the way. And as we were driving, we all seemed to develop a craving for the very same thing, some good old-fashioned KFC. (laughs) It was something greasy, crispy, and finger-licking good that we wanted. And so we pulled off the highway to this small KFC joint that we had found on the map. We quickly looked over the menu, parked the car, and then my brother and I went in to make an order. We already knew what we wanted, and we were happy to see that there weren't many people waiting in line. That should have been our first clue. I opened the door to the restaurant to see a short older woman standing behind the counter. She looked at me kind of grimly. Uh, Hello, I called out, trying to seem as friendly as possible. We have no chicken, she yelled back. And then she began resuming her work, like that was the most normal exchange that could have possibly happened at a fried chicken restaurant. Now, I don't know about you, but among many of the unrealistic expectations I hold about eating out, I suppose I expect that when I go to a fried chicken restaurant, I will most certainly be served some fried chicken. My brother and I looked at each other rather confused. "Uh, Sorry, what? I asked. We have no chicken, she called out again, now somewhat peeved that I hadn't heard her the first time. But we have everything else, she assured me, with a bizarre level of confidence. I kid you not, this KFC had actually run out of chicken. It wasn't even a particularly busy day, but I could see that all the other customers were just as confused as we were. 
You're KFC. Chicken is literally what you're all about, but how could you not have any? You see, the thing that everyone expected to find at KFC, the thing that this restaurant was most known for, was the one thing they didn't have. It was disappointing to us that the core of their being, the most important ingredient, chicken, was missing. You see, who they were in theory didn't match what they were serving in practice. And here in our passage today, I think Paul makes a similar argument. He identifies some of the core ingredients of the Christian life, things like compassion, kindness, humility, patience. Uh, Each of these traits uh, ought to stem from one's core identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. These are the things the Christian ought to be most known for and that people should expect to find in the church. You see, this is our chicken, and the gospel calls us to have lots of it. French fries and soda will not do for the Apostle Paul. Toronto needs a rich, flavorful expression of the gospel. Who we are in theory must match what we serve in practice. And so Paul in this passage invites us to reflect on just that. He asks us to do two things. First, to know who you are. And second, to be who you are. Know who you are and be who you are. Starting with knowing who you are, if you're just joining us, Paul has been writing to the Colossians about something called resurrection life. Uh, Paul has just explained that in Jesus, God came to save his people from their sins by dying on the cross. And when one believes and trusts in Jesus, their life is mysteriously united to his. In the same way that Jesus died to sin, we too are now dead to sin also. In the same way that Jesus rose from the grave, we too have been raised to new life, a resurrected life that is characterized by freedom from sin and radical love for God and others. Now this is important because the Colossians are hearing a ton of contradictory ideas in the culture about who God is and how a person can be saved. And in response to this, Paul wants these Colossians to know with certainty who they are and how they are now called to behave Paul says first that these believers should know who they are. They are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, an original reader would know that there is only one people in the history of the Bible that is ever referred to in this way. It is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, The Lord set his love upon you and chose you. Israel was a nation whom God had chosen to have a very special relationship with. God made them holy. He set them apart from all the other nations. They were his treasured possession. They were his beloved. And what God did was this. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them freedom. And then he empowered them to represent his goodness and grace to the surrounding nations. And what Paul is articulating throughout this letter is this, that God has repeated this very same event in human history, but on a cosmic scale. Through Jesus Christ, God has rescued not just Israel, but every kind of people from slavery. This slavery is not to some earthly power, but is to an unseen enemy, a spiritual enemy that shackles every human heart. It is the power of sin and death. And what God did in saving the people of Israel foreshadowed what he would one day do by saving all kinds of people at the cross. 
To put it another way, the New Testament teaches that the church now represents the new Israel. Christians, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, become this people whom God has chosen to be holy and beloved. Paul is saying in no uncertain terms that it is the Christian whom God chooses, loves, and makes holy. Now, I would imagine that for some of you, that claim sounds fairly offensive. In a culture that says everyone has their own truth and all roads lead to heaven, how is it, is it not ignorant and audacious that the Christians should claim that they are right? Maybe you're thinking, how is it that you can stand there and say that your God, your faith, your way is better than every other that exists? I will tell you. I was born in India, a country that has a plethora of religions represented. We have every kind of God as well as people who wouldn't even believe in God. There are many ways to choose from in my country. Christianity comprises less than 3% of the population. Statistically, it should have been a Hindu or Muslim. These are ways that belong to my people. So you'll understand that when I say to you that Christianity is more true than any other way, I am not in fact saying that my way is better than your way. That is, I think, to sidestep the real question. I'm saying that the gospel, a way that was completely foreign to me and my people, was better than my way. The gospel, that salvation is a free gift not earned, the idea that God came to live, die, and rescue us from sin is completely foreign to every human religion and way. Let me say, if you take issue with the gospel, let it not be over something so trivial as my way versus your way. That is a false dichotomy. The very point of scripture is this, that there are only two ways, one that belongs to God in Jesus Christ and the other that belongs to us. Only one way leads to eternal life. It's not my way versus your way, but God's way versus our way. And the gospel calls all kinds of people everywhere to leave their way and come follow this way. God has chosen this. More specifically in our passage today, God has chosen that you should do this. It was necessary. It was necessary. Because here's the truth. Left to ourselves, all of us would choose a different way. We need God's help. I think this is why the same Deuteronomy 7 passage talks about God has not chosen Israel because they are greater than the other nations, nor because they were morally right, or even because they were better at listening to God than anyone else. In fact, if you read the Bible, you'll actually find that sometimes God's people behave a whole lot worse than everybody else. They often need God's discipline and forgiveness. I know I do. The gospel is different from any other way explicitly because it's not your personal merit that makes God choose you. Your spiritual performance is not the basis of God's love for you and his holiness. Christ is. What Jesus has done in his death and resurrection is what makes you holy and beloved. Now this comes to a head in the Colossian church particularly because there are false teachers encouraging these believers to follow certain Jewish laws and to obey certain ascetic behaviors to gain favor with God. They're teaching two ideas. First, that you will be holy to God if you abstain from certain things. And second, that you will be loved by God if you engage in certain things. They're essentially saying this. God's choosing of you, his delight in you, is subject to what you do and what you don't do. And Paul will have none of this. He takes an entire chapter to dismantle this thinking. 
He says in chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. See, your status as a holy and beloved people is determined exclusively by Jesus. It is he who has made you holy. It is he who has restored you to God's love. But like the Colossians, we forget that often, don't we? Even if you know that you were saved by faith in Jesus alone, haven't you felt in this season like God's delight in you changes from week to week? In this past year alone, I found that almost everyone I've talked to feels at some level they let God down in this season. That what they do and don't do from week to week changes and affects the way God sees them. I've heard you say things like, I haven't spent much time in the Bible. I'm struggling to pray. I keep getting stuck in the same sins. I haven't tried to reach my neighbors. I haven't prioritized my family. Work consumes all my time. I'm finding it hard to worship God through a screen. I found it interesting that every one of these conversations frequently ends with a comment that goes something like this. I feel distant from God. Does any of that sound familiar? I think there are behaviors that inherently make us feel close to God when we do them, and others that make us feel distant from God when we don't. Are we so unlike the Colossian church? We imagine that God's commitment to us ebbs and flows much like the rhythms and seasons of our own life. But is that really so? If we're really honest, many of us know the gospel for our salvation, and yet less than half of us feel its assurance. I want you to see in this passage that God wants you to have this assurance, not in yourself, but in Christ. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 1, God chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. Do you hear that? Before the world was formed, you were a thought in the mind of God. Think about that. Before you were born or did anything good or bad, God saw and knew all the days of your life. He formed you in the womb and welcomed you into the world. He heard you say your first word, and he helped you take your first step. He watched you go to school, make friends, be rebellious, and even question his love. He was there at your graduation as you took on the world. He cheered louder for you than anyone else because he knew that he had determined to pursue you in an unrelenting love. You are his chosen ones. He saw your greatest joys and was with you in your deepest disappointments. He saw when you were promoted and when you were unemployed, when you were deep in debt and when you were financially stable, when you were surrounded by friends, and even when you were home alone. He was present when you got married, and no less present if you didn't. He saw when you were expecting and when you desperately wanted nothing more. He saw time, disease, and loss inflict your body, and yet he rejoiced because he had determined to preserve your soul. You are his chosen ones. And when you pass quietly from this world, unsure if anything in your life ever amounted to any value, or if God even cared, he will be there at the gates of heaven, rejoicing to see the son or daughter whom he has chosen. 
Christian, God has chosen you to be holy and beloved. He has orchestrated the very minutia of his personal cosmic plan of salvation personally for you. If he has before the ages thought about spending eternity with you, do you think for a moment that he would forget you in the lesser things of your day-to-day life? If your eternal destiny has been ordained and secured by God, what could this passing world possibly throw at you that could shake your confidence? What power has COVID over the risen Christ? Your status as a chosen, holy, and beloved child of God is not based on your perception or your performance. It is based on a real historical reality accomplished in Jesus Christ. Because here's why this matters. Jesus is God's chosen one. Jesus is the one most holy before God. Jesus is the one most beloved by God. God's delight in his son does not wax and wane, my friends. It is certain and unchanging. When you believe and trust in Jesus, your life is united to his. You are chosen and holy and beloved by association. God's delight in you does not wax and wane. The things that are true of the Son become true of you. You see that the same spirit that enabled you to believe and trust in Jesus is right now sanctifying you and sowing in your heart the assurance of God's love. There is tremendous power in the gospel for you. These are not some fluffy platitudes. And if you're here and exploring the Christian faith, I need to ask you, what thing could you follow that would make you holy like this? What thing could you pursue with your life that would call you beloved well into eternity? The things of this world will fool and fail you. There is nothing like Christ. So Paul in this passage urges us to know who we are. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Secondly, Paul urges us to be who we are. There are things in this passage that we are meant to put on and practice, but these things cannot be done prior to knowing our identity. In fact, the sentence structure in the Greek here is is really quite remarkable, actually. Paul is emphasizing what we ought to do on the basis of who we are. In order for the Christian life to be lived out well, knowledge must precede practice. You can see that in the text. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Your identity, who you are, is of foremost importance. Now, this isn't to say that your actions and behavior don't matter. In in fact, Paul lists several traits of how a chosen people ought to conduct themselves. And we'll get to that. But rather, Paul is here talking about our status as God's chosen people. As you live out the Christian life, you are free to obey God in a radically different way. The things you do in Christian obedience do not secure God's love for you, but rather they express your love for God. You are not doing these things to get God's attention. You are already chosen. You are not doing these things to become holy. You are holy. You are not doing these things to earn God's love. You are already more loved than you can ever dare imagine. Everything you now do, you do because you are chosen. Now, the immediate question that follows is, okay, okay, but but chosen for what? That is a great question. I think God has so wired our imagination with this kind of language. Just think of some of the movies and literature that inspire us. We popularize this concept of the chosen one. 
Think of figures like Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, Frodo, Neo. Uh, These are ordinary people who are thrust into extraordinary circumstances. These are people chosen to restore balance in the force, uh, to defeat he who must not be named, to carry the ring, to secure balance and peace for the human race. I find it so fascinating that even as we see and enjoy these stories, uh, we know something intuitively. No one is simply chosen for their own good. No one is simply chosen to be saved, happy, healthy, and comfortable. If they were, there would be no story. In fact, the choosing of these characters often means for them greater responsibility, effort, and sacrifice for the sake of others. It sometimes means giving up things they most love, going places they dared not go, but especially standing up for what's right. You could almost say that they're chosen, their being chosen for, is for a higher purpose and to serve the good of others. And so it is with God's choosing of you. Paul says that as God's chosen ones, you are holy and beloved. This is priestly language from the Old Testament. The job of an Israelite priest was to embody before the people God's holiness and love. In the Bible, the priest, they were chosen to do two things. First, to represent God's holiness and love to people. And second, to invite people into that holiness and love. And as the nation of Israel grew more in the knowledge of God's holiness and love, they were meant to extend this holiness and love to the surrounding nations. This was the goal. Exodus 19.6 reiterates this. God's plan for Israel is this, that you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see? Israel was chosen to be holy and beloved, but not just for their own sake. As a priestly people, they were chosen to spread God's holiness and love. God's intention was that the nations would look at this small but thriving people and ask, what makes them tick? In the midst of an ancient world that was cruel, corrupt, and unjust, God commanded his people to be holy and different. They were to be different in the way they treated refugees and sojourners, in the way they cared for the poor and the marginalized, in the way they dignified the elderly and the sick. They were to have a countercultural ethic on sexuality, marriage, children, and money. They were to model to the world what it looks like to be God's chosen, holy, and beloved people so that others would know about this God and be drawn to him. And Paul is saying this, this charge has now been passed to the church. What a weighty thing. What a weighty, important thing. Among the many ways we are to conduct ourselves differently, as Paul says in this chapter, Paul stresses here in verse 12 that we are to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Do you see? Being these things is a product of being God's chosen people. This is not a to-do list, but it is an invitation to be who you are. Now, if you're here wrestling with Christianity, you might be wondering, well, why do I need Jesus to be these things? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, these are all things that our society values. I don't need Jesus to be this way. And I grant you that. It is perfectly possible for you to exhibit outwardly all the same traits regardless of what you believe. In fact, it used to bother me profoundly that I would often encounter skeptics who were at times more loving, more kind, and more generous than some of the Christians I knew in my life. 
here's the thing I've realized. At the core of our being, everyone wants to be known for their moral goodness. We all want people to think well of us. We all want to be held in the highest regard. Isn't that true? And at the same time, everyone wants to be deeply loved. We want to be known and accepted for who we are. We want belonging of the deepest kind. You boil these two things down, and here's what you'll find. We all want to be thought well of, and we all want to be loved. But do you see the irony? Everyone wants to be holy, and everyone wants to be beloved. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious, you crave this identity. The only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that we go looking for these things in vastly different places. The Christian is bestowed with holiness and love from God. You are kind, compassionate, and loving because God's Spirit enables you to be such. But if you don't have this view of God, you are left to simply construct this identity for yourself. And you will do it because you are wired to want it. You want to be seen as holy and you want desperately to be loved. And so you will look to other people. Your life skeptic will become all about doing and saying the right things and guarding your reputation so closely so that you might attain something from people that only God can give you. Being kind, compassionate, humble, meek, and patient will not make you holy and beloved. But when you trust in Jesus, doing these things will evidence that you are such. This is why Paul cares so much that we should be who we are. This matters immensely to how we treat others, both in the church and outside of it. I think it's for this reason that you don't find Paul asking us to be wise or to be strong. It's not that these things aren't important, you see. But what Paul is doing is zeroing in on relational values. Every trait listed here is incredibly important for good, healthy gospel relationships. You must show each other compassion and kindness. You must be patient. You must demonstrate humility and meekness. As Pastor Jeff mentioned last week, these words are written to the church, not to the individual. We, not just you, are God's chosen people. I wonder, how might that change how you see each other? Let me rephrase this passage for you. God has chosen your brother and sister. God has made him and her holy. God calls him and her his beloved. How then, Christian, are you to treat one another in the church? If God has chosen your brother and sister, who are you to write them off? If God has called your brother and sister holy, who are you to slander them? If God has called your brother and sister beloved, who are you to hold grudges and bitterness against them? Do you see? You are to treat every one of your brothers and sisters with respect, love, and dignity. They are chosen, holy, and beloved, just as you are. Now, next week, we're going to be looking more specifically at conflict and relationships. But for now, it's worth seeing that these traits are listed in really logical and practical ways. This is a blueprint for gospel relationships. Compassion and kindness is at the first level. This is how we always approach people with love and understanding. We treat all people as those made in the image of God, regardless of their differences. We move towards them with compassion and kindness. But as you know, sometimes that won't be enough. 
because of the sin in our lives, relationships will break down. There will be misunderstandings, miscommunications, ill feelings, wounds, and hurt. This church is no stranger to conflict. This is why we also need humility. There's always a need to listen well to another person, to be willing to admit our faults, to ask for forgiveness when we wrong someone. And yet, sadly, sometimes that won't be enough either. Sometimes our wounds go so deep, and we'll need to demonstrate meekness. Meekness is the quality of relinquishing your rights and submitting yourself to another without resisting. It may mean having someone think ill of you for a season or bearing their disappointment or anger against you for a while. That's so hard. But you're called to do this in love. And at the end of all that, you are to have godly patience. Godly, godly patience. You are to give people time and space to process their feelings and hurt. You are to wait on the Lord to help you reconcile well with others. And even then, some wounds may never be resolved this side of heaven. These are difficult things that are being asked of us. You ought not to so quickly gloss over this list. You are being called to radical, sacrificial, and humble love for each other. And as you move further down the list of these traits from least to most serious, you will realize that it is this kind of love that will distinguish you from those who do not have Jesus. It is difficult, but in Christ, you have the power to do this. This is your resurrection life. Because here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, God's chosen one, the most holy and beloved of God, came to undo the power of sin. No one else could carry this ring. No one else could restore balance in the forest. Jesus went toe-to-toe with he who must not be named. And in his death and resurrection, he brought peace to the human race. Talk about a saga of epic proportions. At the cross, you see, Jesus conquered cruelty with compassion, hatred with kindness, and pride with humility. He exemplified meekness as he submitted himself to torture, insult, and excruciating death. And then he endured these things with patience because he knew that it was necessary to rescue a people holy and beloved by God. My friends, in Jesus, you have a great and lasting hope because the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is right now alive in you. He's alive in you. His purpose is to remind you that you are chosen people, holy and beloved. It is his pleasure to empower you to be just as your Lord and Savior. Would you do that? With some application, what can we say of this passage? What are we called to do here? I think this passage calls us to know who we are and to be who we are. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, Recognize deep down that you do want these things. You do want holiness. You do want to be loved. It's a very normal human emotions. Our culture will only give you so much, and you will find yourself having to earn every bit of it and guard it fiercely. I want you to see from this text that in Jesus you can be more holy and more loved than you ever dared imagine. This identity need not be earned. It is freely given to you in the gospel. For the Christian, know that you are chosen 
that you are chosen people, holy and beloved. Your ability to live this powerful resurrection life is catalyzed by who you are in Christ. Look at this list. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If there are areas of your life where you struggle to practice these, is it possible that you are suffering from a misplaced identity? Do you believe with every fiber of your being that it is in Christ that you are chosen, holy, and beloved? Take some time this week to just pray and reflect on that. Ask the Lord to give you this assurance in a difficult season. Second, would you also commit to being who you are? This text asks us to walk the talk because Christ is these things. You also are to be these things to each other and the watching world. Relationally, who do you find it difficult to consider in a way that is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient? Who in your city can you show compassion to? Who in the church needs your kindness? Who in your life is driving you up the wall? Is there someone whom you have wounded with your words? Is there someone whom you need to be reconciled with? Ask God to show you these people, and then would you courageously would you courageously take some steps towards them in love? You have the power to do this in Christ. I'll end with this. I have a friend who has a funny ritual every morning. Every morning, he'll strip off his night clothes and stand stark naked in front of the mirror, sometimes for up to 10 minutes. It's really uncomfortable, he says. But as he does this, he remembers that he is naked that God sees every sin and every pretension and that everything he might want to hide from God is utterly exposed and laid bare. And yet as he looks at himself in the mirror, as he stands there stark naked, he remembers that also he is chosen, that he is holy, and that he is deeply loved because of Christ. And then he prays, Lord, today, today, would you dress me in Christ? I am naked, so help me put on the things that belong to you. Isn't that wonderful? You have the power to do this. Ask for this. Put on the things that belong to Christ. My friends, though you are naked, you have been clothed in Christ. Put on these qualities. Live the resurrection life. Go be who you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that though we are naked and we had nothing to show, You have clothed us in Christ. I pray that you would help us to be these things, to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient, not for our own sake, but because you have made us a chosen people and you call us holy and beloved. Spirit, would you help us as a church to be this way? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have some time for Q&A. We have one question here. How are we to understand the efficacy of being renewed in knowledge as opposed to being made new through God's revelation and or by God's spirit? If I understand what you're saying, you're asking, what is the difference between being renewed ourselves and my responsibility to being renewed versus what God is asking me to do, um, versus what God is doing by, my spirit, by his spirit? Um, I think 
Paul gives us a really great example of that just earlier in Colossians. He says, I struggle with all God's strength working in me. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not a, this is not a let go and let God sort of sermon. Paul is, not, uh, Paul is not saying that you ought to just let God do the work and you have no responsibility, but, but rather in your trying, in your work, uh, your, your trying is, will actually succeed. You have the greatest hope because God is doing that work through you. So I hope that's helpful. If I misunderstood the question, please, please reach out. Uh, is there is a strong sense of chosenness, a gift that every Christian can pray for, expecting to receive from God or will some struggle with it their whole life? Does that have any implication on their chosenness? Oh, that's such a good question. What saves you is Jesus. Jesus is the basis on which you are saved. If you lack assurance, I think the Bible encourages us to have assurance, to seek that assurance. Uh, you ought to read the word. To, to pray, to, to ask God for that assurance. But nowhere in the Bible do I find that you are condemned for having, not having that assurance. I think the Bible calls us to, to seek that out diligently, to be diligent as we live out the Christian life. Um, but, but your lack of that is, 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 not, um, is not a deterrent to you that doesn't condemn you. But do seek it out. Uh, do, do wrestle with, with this with your small groups. Wrestle with this with your pastors, with other believers. We're meant to encourage each other and do this together as a church. Uh, as Paul says, it's not that you are a chosen person, but we are chosen people. If you struggle alone with your chosenness, well, I, I fully expect that, that that would be difficult. But if you struggle together with the people who are chosen, I, I think there's great confidence and assurance to be found there. I hope that's helpful. Let's do one more. Um, a, cons- a consistent Christian message is how we don't need to work for or earn God's love. He already loves us and has chosen us, but this isn't the experience. Why is God so silent to people he loves and chooses? How can you preach his love when so many of us feel nothing but distance and silence? Is this his version of love? Thank you for your question. That is a very hard thing that you wrestle with. I don't want to speak in a way that would wound or hurt you. I think there are ways um, through different seasons of our lives, things that we encounter terrible sin that is inflicted upon us that makes it very difficult to see God's love that makes it very difficult to feel his peace and his comfort um, I would I would like if you could work through this question with one of our pastoral staff or even with me if you feel comfortable I think it's so important and um, we'd love to help you see that and to pray for you yeah, I hope that's helpful. I, I think there's a perfectly legitimate reason for you to feel that way, and I, I, I want to do honor to that. Thanks. I think that'll be it for questions. Yeah.